As we continue our studies in <clears throat> Second Corinthians, uh, today we're on the chapter 5, verses 11 through 15. Remember a few weeks ago, uh, <clears throat> we talked about that Second Corinthians has an insert, like the, a digression, but very important digression. From chapter 2 to chapter 7, uh, more specifically 2.14 to uh, 7.4, 7.4.5, it seems like inserted in the midst of Paul's natural flow of the letter. And the main purpose is to defend his apostolic ministry. In Corinth, there are new apostles from uh, teachers from Jerusalem with the letters of recommendation. Uh, their external things are very impressive, and they even refer themselves as a super apostles. And Paul calls him calls them super apostles, um, and they were accusing Paul not as a, a not not as a uh, legitimate uh, apostle apostle of Christ, and then <clears throat> the people at Corinth, even though Paul was the spiritual father, the founded the church, and they doubted, and this is a part of uh, his defense on, on not only on his apostolic ministry but the sake of gospel he defends himself this past message on verses 1 through 10 was connected to uh, chapter 4 16 to all the way to chapter 5 10 which is about hope one of the things that he goes through, he went through, is much of affliction and difficult time. And, and they were basically saying, if he was really of Christ and from Christ, why would he go through all so much of suffering? And Paul actually shares about suffering and keep on saying, repeating himself, we do not lose heart. The hope was not only for today's world, but beyond the grave. In verse 11 this morning, he's go, he goes back to explaining about the nature of his ministry again. So in so doing, the title suggests our topic, the main focus of the message, motivation for ministry. When you hear the motivation for ministry, obviously Paul was apostolic, referring to apostolic ministry, but each one of us to need to think about our life. Whether you have a formal way of doing ministry or not, you're volunteering somewhere, but your life is serving God. As a child of God, a servant of God, each one of us. 
So motivation for Christian life and ministry, serving God and loving God, motivation for living for God is probably the right focus. So in so doing, I think we need to start with some well-meaning but misguided, I underline misguided motivations for ministry. There are at least four. First one is a motivation that comes from outward appearance. Focus on out, looking good outside. It is a failure to realize that God looks at the heart, not outward experience, appearance. 1 Samuel 16, 7 is the basis for, for this uh, correction. When <clears throat> si- uh, so <clears throat> King Saul was so tall, but then he rejected God, <clears throat> little shepherd boy David was among the many brothers and Samuel was uh, led by the Spirit, and God said, Among sons of Jesse, you will find the next king. Anoint him. And then he was looking at number one son, number two, number three. They're tall and looking like a, you know, probably like they could be general. Therefore, He's a king type. And that's when the Lord whispered in Samuel's to not look at his appearances. Men look at the appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. So in some sense, um, each misguided motivation is close to us. I have all those four things struggled even before and it could come back like a boomerang. Why? What's under appearances also seem important, isn't it? And the way our church building looks, the way our congregation sits. You know, I was really afraid this morning that so many families are gone. It will be literally, we put everyone here, like that kind of thing. But when our focus is in an outward appearance, we look for titles, we look for numbers, we look for how we appear as a Christ follower, as a church. And that is wrong. Second misguided is a man-centered goals. Uh, <clears throat> in the pragmatic world, setting goals is encouraged. But the problem is that setting goals by man-centered desires. Uh, the typical thing about um, individual lives, and, and by this time, uh, I will achieve this goal. Why? To glorify God. I've yet to met, I've met several people, young men, by the end of 
At age of 30, I'm going to be a millionaire. Or the business people, I will double and triple the size of my business. And then the qualification for that is so that I could give much more and glorify God. I have yet to man people who actually follow through that. The means by which they were trying to achieve the goal changed them so the end became changed. It is a failure to acknowledge that God is the end, not a means to an end. Number three, misguided motivation is a people-pleasing passion. Um, Of course, we want to be light. I want to be light. And that we want to be in some regarded as popular, affirmed, But when that becomes our driving uh, motivation, we forget to remember each one of us will be judged by, not by people, but by Christ. (coughs) The fourth and last one is self-preoccupation. I intentionally put that at the last because this is most subtle, Yet this is most prominent. And it goes with a lot of rationalization. Self-preoccupation doesn't mean this ministry is mine. This ministry is I will make that happen. Well, not so much. The language goes something like, I really want to glorify God by being successful through this ministry or this endeavor. And this, as, as, as a father, as a, as a mother, I want to do everything I can so that my kids will grow and glorify God. Almost all of you guys know, 11, 20, 12 years ago, I resigned from a large church that's growing fast. My role was overarching pastor of uh, supervising several dozens of pastors under me. I resigned. No one asked me to. Because Instead of being continually misguided because of my midlife funk, I start questioning about motive. I think that is really important point as we begin to this text. Because logic goes like this, which is half truth. You should not judge others. Look at those churches and they're, they're doing fine. God uses everyone. Why? Because no one should judge others' motive. No one, no one except God can see that. True. So even in personal relationship with others, you should not other judge others' motive. As if you could see their secrets in the heart. Obviously not. The problem is, 
we end up not doing that for ourselves either. Assuming that, oh, okay, by the end of this year, our church will be double size in the number. By the end of this, this decade, our church will be reaching past 4,000 people. When we are asked why, we end up saying, of course it is for God. God is pleased. So when it comes to church growth in ministry, there is no question about that. When it comes to your success of, as a businessman, as a mother, um, in your leadership, you pray for that, assuming that it is for God. During that time, of just which, which led to my resignation, self-voluntary resignation, my men's group, a few guys who were journeying through all midlife uh, funk going through, and I was felt safe enough to be utterly honest with them. Guys, I'm lifting every rock to see what's underneath. Not assuming. And then as I'm doing that, I feel terrified because of my mixed motives. What's good about Second Corinthians is it's radical enough for us to look at ourselves and the scripture becomes mirror. We thought that nothing was on our face but dirty marks and hair is on our face. So with that as a context, let's look at the text. Verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also your conscience. We need to know why therefore is therefore. What is the reason why Paul is saying therefore? Fear of the Lord all of a sudden. Verse 10 Paul concluded his hope with this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, because of the judgment seat, we're fearful. The fear becomes driving motivation for Paul. Lest you think that, wait a minute, that sounds kind of funny to have the motivation from fear. I thought fear is always bad. No. Have Have you seen your kids? If they're not fearful of the fire and they put their hand in there, if they're not fearful of the height, they might jump. 
but also this fear is much more than the meaning of terror. Obviously, God will judge us. You know, the, the scene becomes like this. Typically, child molesters, rapists, and then you come in, you shake their body and say, don't, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? In other words, do you know God sees us and then you will be judged by God? You should feel the terror right now. Yes, that's one of it. Let's not get around it. We will be evaluated by God. But at the same time, this fear is much more about respectful awe. The type of respect that you have, the sense of genuine healthy fear arouses in your, in your body. For example, if you are such a great golfer, just imagine that when you are playing the you know, second round of doing this, and Tiger Woods comes, in, comes into the golf club, just watch you. I don't know whether you play piano, instruments. The name the person that you respect the most. Or your sports. Whether basketball or soccer. Or that respectable awe is there. If God sees every single deed that we do in this body, furthermore, God sees the secrets of our heart, why we do what we do. Externally, you could do a lot of good things, but if you have ulterior motive, if you have a hidden motive, that, that's not even clear to you because you don't live up every rock and see what's underneath. Then you could get surprised at the judgment seat of Christ. The many of them will say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this in your name for your glory? On that day, I will say to you, Jesus said, I do not know you. Depart from me, evildoers. So this fear keeps us be mindful of critical need of our need of preparation to stand, to, to have the readiness to face judgment seat of Christ. Once again, just to be clear, I want to state the obvious. Grace of God will uphold us even at the judgment seat. In spite of all wrongdoings, no condemnation will be applied to us. But when Jesus allows us to the entrance of the kingdom of God, he said to some people, well done, my good and faithful servant. The reward is not earned, it's grace. But to be able to please our Lord, our Master, in itself, 
I need another sermon to explain that. In itself, there is a reward. And if you reflect your relationship with your children, you will realize that. More than the gift that you're giving to them as a reward, your joy and your affirmation, your blessing, your reaction to them is actually the true reward to their good deeds. They do not earn. The crowns of righteousness cannot be unearned. According to what we have done, according in, in light of the parable of talent, more will be given to, more responsibility will be given to those who receive affirmation and praise from the Lord. I'm not sure when was last time you thought about fear of the Lord as your motivation. And as I meditate, you know, this actually has purifying effect on our, on my ulterior motive. Even as I stand before you, I cannot, I can never say I have always 100% purest motive before God and before you. And I would not need a salvation. And there is always that 1%, 2% of the ulterior motive or the hidden motive that I might not know. But when I think about I will stand before Christ, I tremble. I fear. Lord, help me to be faithful, to present your word without compromise, with clearly, with joy and passion. That is my truth in the innermost being. In spite of other things are there, the truth in the innermost being is that I want to please you because of fear of you. This fear has another angle to it, that which is the second motivation. Uh, actually, first motivation of second with second ramification. We are to be motivated by the fear of the Lord. This time that prompts us to persuade others, making our sincerity known to their conscience. Reading verse 11 again, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known, to, known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about toward appearance and not about what is in the heart. So, uh, Paul is going for this fear of the Lord 
being prepared for the judgment seat. And this time I'm doing the things that please the Lord, that he's commanded by, with sincerity. The one word describes his posture and his attitude in ministry, which comes from fear of the Lord, is sincerity. The super apostles were using disgraceful, underhanded ways in ministry, cunning ways, tempering the word of God for their own purpose. Well, that happens all the time around us. What does it mean to uh, have a cunning ways? Chapter 4, verse 2, he, uh, he explains it this way. But we have renounced disgraceful, disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to temper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's con conscience in the sight of God. So when you think about this fear of the Lord, oh, I need to live in the sight of the sight of the Lord, so that I so that I may be ready to face the judgment seat of Christ. And secondly, I need to do the things that Lord Jesus would be pleased in accounting what I have done in my body, namely. The Great Commission to persuade others. In in some sense, I think this persuade of others is so that they could be ready uh, along with me to face the judgment seat of God. More plainly, sharing the gospel, share, sharing in such a way that purposeful, not forceful, purposefully sharing the good news with them. And he mentioned doing it sincere way. In verse 12, what is he talking about? We're not commending ourselves to you, but again, but giving you cause to boast about us. Paul is still in tension with this defending himself against super apostles, false apostles. They come with the external superlatives. I'm going to give you some things to respond. These are real things. And these are sincere things. And I wonder, as Apostle Paul said, my motives are clear to, to you. And sometimes the reality of life no matter how much I purify motive before God, the people who have brokenness will misjudge me, misunderstand me. And the same goes to each one of you too. It doesn't matter how much you work on fear of the Lord and purifying your motive. But at the same time, if you're honest, 
look at their way of doing life, ministry. This is what Paul is saying. I hope, as God knows my way, I hope you would know, being open and transparent about it. This idea of uh, persuading others is uh, something that uh, is not culturally popular either. So when you uh, when you think about persuading others, and there seems to be certain purpose for that. So in a way that you want to just kind of go along with the current and if you are hanging out with your friends and they bring up the topic of spiritual things and you want to speak about Christ and it seems so opposite and poking the way they think about spiritual life, in typically in a new age, open-minded way. And then you could think about persuading. It is not our responsibility to make change their mind, but it is our responsibility to say things clearly, firmly, gently, whether they receive the truth or not. With the right amount of tact, of course. We should not be bulldozer. But we should never be more people-pleasing than the fear of the Lord. I might as well confess my temptation. Second Corinthians is a radical book tough things to say. And sometimes I worry about scaring people off. I pray that you will pray for me every week that I fear genuinely fear the Lord. Number three um, the second driving motivation of Apostle Paul was love, to simply put. The first one was fear of the Lord, a two ramification we talked about. And the first ramification of the fear of the Lord, second driving motivation, is that it compels us to live a God-centered an other-centered life. Verse 13 below. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. And he's also defending against what Apostle the false apostles are doing and they were using others as a means in ministry once again assuming that the ministry is for God for God not for themselves that's a rationalization but how did they use people and 
chapter 11, verse 20 and 21, Paul mentions that. For if you bear it, if someone makes you, he's generally referring to false apostles. If someone makes you slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face, to my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. You know what Paul is saying here? The apostle, the super apostles came with just overconfidence and they were driving force of the church and they were demanding in such a way that people were mistreated but because of their decisive leadership style, oh, they must have something really powerful. Doesn't it make you think about TV evangelist who's demanding million dollars to be donated because they're doing great things for God? You're going to miss out if you do not donate? And Paul is saying, we've never done that and we, we look too weak for you to be respected. Rather, Paul was motivated by Christ's love. And Christ's love is, means that, that he wants to do the things that please Christ. Obviously, the things, the, the person whom we love, we want to please. And more than anything, Christ loves us too. Or be a loving person. Not not warm, fuzzy person, but the love in a way to seek others best. To seek first others' interest before ours. That's others centered. And then rather than seeking our own self preoccupation, self-obsession, that God becomes the center. God's rule becomes our deepest concern. The love of Christ controls us. It controls us, this word is compelling. That when you feel compelled, you I, I just... This compels me to say this. We often say that, right? My love for the kids compels me to advocate about this. Lest we think it's the one way we should think about this. Of course, love of Christ for us, Paul is saying. It's just overwhelmingly compelling to us. But Paul is also saying, my love for Christ. When you really love for Christ, you want to love others. You want to live God-centered life. You want to live others-centered, others-oriented life. I love the fact that uh, one of the home group leaders, when they're ending this season, 
Um, the final celebration, they didn't do study, they're sharing. Um, one of the members said, I realized, in my words, because I, I, I'm paraphrasing, I, I don't quite remember verbatim, how I affect the group when I'm not there, when I miss the group. The mentality used to be when I show up, what's the study or what do I get? What's in it for me? That's a natural tendency. But love by, compelled by love of Christ is when I show up, it affects the encouragement for the group. The leader feels encouraged. So others feel encouraged and supportive. Self-yielding life. When was the last time you thought about that? And even in um, in our church life, if you ask me, what's one of the things that tangible things, easiest thing that I could do to build up the unity of Christ? I'll say, show up. Show up in your men's group. Show up in your women's group. Show up in your home group. Show up in your worship service on Sunday. Show up to say, I belong to this body. Because the love of Christ compels me to not to seek my own interest first. For fathers. This is radical. Because rugged individualism of America is never is. Never thought parent is this way. I think we need to see ourselves when our children are typically doing things that are very self-absorbed. One of our sons are going to <clears throat> our family gathering, birthday party, said, What's the menu? What's the menu? And then knowing the menu, oh, I don't like that. Okay, so <laughs> okay, my son, this is not your birthday. This is not your day. We're going there to celebrate the person. God-given blessings upon their lives. We we kind of laugh at that, but at the same time. We could think like that in many ways of our church life and Christian life and even in our community. Outside of church, but that I mean. Okay, fourth and last one is once again love with another ramification is that leads us to live for one who died and was raised for us. Verse 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
And obviously, our default mode, if we don't think about it, we live for ourselves. Do you see Paul's thought process? His mental logic that concludes the emotional passion. He says, all, I mean, one died for all. And therefore, all died. And th this is a very theologically important for us to catch that, the mental process. Christ died for all who those who believe. And therefore, our old selves, because he died in our behalf, in our place, on our behalf, the penal substitutory death, that we do not have to pay the penalty of our sin, which is death, anymore. So in God's eyes, every single one of us who believe in Christ, place our faith in Christ, we're united with Christ, and his death becomes my death. So every single one of us died. There is no longer Paul Kim lives, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now I live, I live by faith for Christ because he died for me. I'm living his life. That's his logic. But the emotional passion, do you need to hear that? If Christ died for me and was raised for me, isn't this good enough reason for me to recklessly abandon my life? I dedicate my life, my, my, my all to you, my heart, all that I am, all that I belong. And this hymn, I used to sing as a little child in, in my church growing up, came to me with new meaning. And written in 1882, it has a, such a powerful, passionate appeal to our souls. Listen to, to this. Ralph Hudson wrote, My life, my love, I give to thee, thou Lamb of God who died for me. Oh, may I ever faithful be, my Savior and my God. I now believe thou dost receive, for thou hast died that I might live. And now, henceforth, I will trust to thee, my Savior and my God. O thou who died on Calvary to save my soul and make me free, I'll consecrate my life to thee, my Savior and my God. And the refrain goes, I'll live for him who died for me. How happy then my life shall be. I'll live for him who died for me, my Savior and my God. I don't know when was last time that you, quote-unquote, rededicated your life to, to God. I call you as your pastor and brother in the name of Christ and his love to give your life to him today. Give your heart to him. Live for him. That you no longer live for your selfish desires and your preoccupation for yourself. But he who died for you is good enough, more than enough. 
And then you will experience joy in such a way that you never experienced before. Transcendent joy. Because God created the, that, that way. Would you? Would you dedicate your life to God? To Christ and say, Lord, you died for me from this point on. I no longer live. I will live for you. Let's go back to the first misguided motivation that I shared. Uh, in light of this text, feel the shift, Christ-honoring shift we ought to have in motivations for ministry and life. Number one, from outward experience, appearance to pure heart because of fear of the Lord. Number two, from men-centered goals to God-centered promptings because of fear of the Lord. Number three, from people-pleasing passion to fear of the Lord. And lastly, number four, from self-preoccupation To love of Christ. Not only Christ's love for me, but not my, but also my love for Christ. The summer's been hectic and dry and hot. Nothing that stable. Some of us are quietly waiting for the school to start, to go back to our calm routine of life without the kids. But I wonder, one of the groanings that we sense this morning, I sense at least, to fall in love with Christ again. To live a spiritually vital life and in which we feel the love of Christ and our love for Christ as well. Let's pray. I know some of you um, felt the clear prompting of the Spirit about those shift. Uh, that we just read about in light of today's passage. What confession would you make to God, Christ right now as I close with prayer? Just a simple sentence between you and God, between you and Christ. where I give my life to you. I live for you. I dedicate, rededicate my life to you. Out of respect between you and God and Christ, I'll not even ask anything that you would show to me. Maybe you could come up to me at the end of service. 
But this is the moment just between you and God. And God sees your heart. Oh yes, Lord, thank you for this clear reminder for our motivation in life and in serving God and living God, living for God. May we live with this keen sense of fear of the Lord that, might, that we might prepare ourselves for the judgment seat of Christ, that we might plunge ourselves in persuading others to be ready as well with all sincerity. Teach us to be motivated by your love, that our love make our life God-centered and other-centered with all gladness that we would dedicate our, our lives to you, live each day for you. Frankly, Lord, some of us are sick and tired of doing life with a self-preoccupation. Free us from ourselves. Help us to see transcendent joy and experience, experience it as your follower. Thank you so much for your love, your death and resurrection for each one of us. Revive our church, I pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen.